Bad Morning was probably the most engaged strip that I drew. It just shows our child not wanting to get out of bed. And my husband and I wondering why she's doing this. And then me getting a cushion thrown at my head. And then me saying that I felt sad, hurt, shame and anger. I think you feel all of those things at once. You don't just feel one thing in these situations, you feel it all. And then I drew the next picture, which is my child hiding under the duvet, um, feeling the same feeling, sad, hurt, shame and anger. And then there's me telling my child, you can't do this, and then telling me to shut up. And then me shouting, everyone has to go to school, it's the law and them shouting, shut up. And then slam, tears, shout, despair, and me feeling like a terrible parent and guilty. And then my husband saying, I'll go into work later and we can try and get her in later. And, And I drew that and I posted to all those who try and tell us we need to try harder to get our children into school. This is the reality. How would you do this morning? Because how do you get a child into school who's really not wanting to go? Episode two, A Bad Morning. I'm Eliza Fricker, and you are listening to Missing the Mark, a podcast about autism, diagnosis and the education system. I'm an illustrator, a mother, and I draw the Missing the Mark cartoon about the education system and autism. In this episode, I'll be hearing how traumatising school can be, the pressure to fix, to fit in, and how children are masking their true self to survive at school. Currently, almost 2 million children are regularly absent from school. Many of these will have special needs, making going to school a stressful and distressing experience. Yet the school system focuses on attendance, not well-being. So attendance becomes the first obstacle to overcome. Tom Vodden is a school governor, teacher and trainer. The narrative and the narrative within the media is that if your child isn't attending school, then you are likely to be a feckless parent and your children have no interest in learning and you are just not invested in your child's education. And I think that that narrative represents a very small percentage. And as a parent, you know, there are probably elements of my life that people would describe as slightly feckless, but I think in general terms, and I run my own business, I'm educated to a certain degree, yet I have a child who for a period of time struggled to get into school. So, you know, the response is, well, do you need to go on a parent training course? Well, not really. I've got a master's level degree in psychology of education. You know, I have an expertise in SEN. That's not really what I need. But I know colleagues within the field who have children with, special educational needs, one of whom I'm thinking 
leads one of the parent training courses and has been referred to go on her own course. Attendance is the be all and end all. So for schools, they may show concern. Um, you get lots and lots of little head tilts of concern when you go into those rooms and you're crying and saying you're trying and your child's miserable. But the bottom line is to get that child in to attend because attendance is what the school will be looked at and judged on themselves by Ofsted. So they have to have those children in for them to be seen by central government to be a school that other parents will want to send their children to because they've looked at the Ofsted and seen it's it's a good or outstanding school. Um, so they will want those children to attend. And often that will be at the cost of a child being able to do any work. We had one he was a sort of advisor in the local authority and he said to us at one point just being in school is enough about our daughter i took that as at the time that he was really well meaning that he was saying to me that her being in school was enough because the environment was that overwhelming for her it's only through editing my book that i've now been able to see it differently what that actually meant was that let's get her into school, come what may, regardless of whether she's able to do anything in that environment. And what is the point? What is the point of having a child who is unable to do anything, any work, because they're so distressed, but they've ticked the attendance? So if we've got a child who is really struggling with the school environment, you know, and probably consistent across quite a large group of children will be, for whatever reason, some kind of underlying anxiety, whatever the source of that is. And then on top of that, we say, well, you're not in school, but you know what? If you miss a few more days, I'll just make you a little bit more anxious by telling you that your GCSEs are likely to be even worse. So, you know, that narrative is understandable, but actually that is about the weight of expectation on schools in terms of this conversation around attendance that says these kids have to be in to learn. So just, just tell them that if they're not, they're not going to get their GCSEs. The reality is for a group of children who may get themselves into school to tick the attendance box, is that they're not learning anyway. So actually, it's a complete, it's a complete nonsense to even start the conversation at that point. The school system is inflexible and can't respond to individual needs, says Chris Bagley. Uh, focus on efficiency and standards comes from economic models around capitalism and neoliberal approaches. And the idea that a successful school system is one that efficiently creates essentially products and standardised results and all you have to do is manage your school well 
and that produces a certain number of grades or allows that you know, school to present themselves a certain way in lead tables. And that sort of standards and efficiency agenda is incredibly powerful. In my opinion, that's because the obsession with standards and efficiency in competition positions them as objects, doesn't position them as human beings. So we can't respond to those individuals. And that's a very complex picture, isn't it, then, when they don't succeed. You can't blame the system because it's too complicated and distant and disparate. So what tends to happen is the child gets blamed and often that happens unconsciously. My new book, which is going to be my illustrations and cartoon strips, is actually called Can't Not Won't. Because I think at the minute, the narrative around attendance is there's a choice. You're choosing not to go in or you're choosing to be late. Um, which may be for a small group of teenagers. But when you're talking about children as young as five, six, seven, um, this idea that they're choosing not to be with their friends, um, they're choosing to have these really dramatic um, and distressing mornings, that's not a choice to be in that place and to feel that sort of distress about the beginnings and start of a day and that's something that is a narrative that is getting bigger and stronger throughout the government and throughout the media um, because there's this idea partly about catch-up but it also gives it a really simplistic um, spin on something that's very very complicated so even well-meaning professionals can say things that are really off the mark or missing the mark and that's why I use that phrase because things like uh, a recent interaction I had with a parent on Twitter was saying that they had been advised to put their child in school uniform and make them as bored as they can be at home to encourage them to find school more attractive and desirable. School wants my child to attend regardless of their mental state, but as parents we know the school is creating that distress. Anxiety is heightening as we feel the pressure to get them there, otherwise we are told their future chances are diminishing. We had thought our child's autism diagnosis would bring support and understanding to all of this. But what does this support actually look like? In this illustration of mine, I'm laying under a whiteboard. And it's the different departments that you will come across in this system of support. And there's arrows going all around in, in, in different directions. And my phone is saying that I've got the wrong department and I actually need another department. And I didn't know any how to work any of it and, and who, which pathway leads to what pathway. There's just my bafflement at trying to do that on top of looking after my child. 
um, is trying to learn this new job that I don't get paid for and I don't want to do. So it's local authority, casework, okay. inclusion support service, ASC support specialist, provision map, site, SENT, teaching assistant, class teacher, SENCO, EHCP. ADHD, ASC, you know, and figure out what, what that means and, and, and how to get support and just trying to understand you know, what's going on for your child and who these people are when it comes to, you know, these abbreviations of ed psych and clinical psychologists and who, who these people are and what the differences are between them. And again, it's confusing and, and further anxiety inducing. Now imagine you add an extra layer to deal with. Liz Soper is co-founder of A Seat at a Table, a group of black and brown women who advocate for families with special educational needs from diverse backgrounds. I came from a background of childcare. I'd raised a number of children. I'd worked in children's home. I'd worked in nursery, preschool, school. And I was aware that my child had some difficulties and found some things um, tricky. But I wasn't heard, and I think... Being a woman of colour, people were even offended by me even trying to talk about and, and express that. Within your job as an advocate, if a parent perhaps hasn't got that diagnosis yet, do you support them to go down the route of diagnosis because you think it will come with better understanding and support? We are supportive, but... The vast majority, you know, their child is either unable to attend school or school doesn't want them to be attending. You know, the system's not working and there's a, like a layer of um, privilege that's been created now by those that can afford to go down a private diagnostic route and pay for that and have that quicker. But as we also know, you know, that in itself is just one element the diagnosis unfortunately you know you learn very quickly through your lived experience that diagnosis doesn't then mean in many cases that things are going to be adapted or, or that the school experience is going to be any better and even when you've found a school that you think is going to be more suitable you may well have to go down the route of having a court case to convince the LA to pay for that so you might then need further documents to pay for, to back your evidence that the setting the LA put forward is unsuitable. So all of it is pretty cost intensive on a family, isn't it? Um, it, it is, and most of our families aren't able to go down that route. So the outcomes are looking different, which again is part of our motivation for why we exist to help bring the knowledge and help empower families. And if you are from a black, brown or ethnic minority, you're likely to be two years behind getting a diagnosis than white children. Is it even considered or is very quickly the child labelled as being naughty, had a behavioural approach or been treated a certain way and experienced a lot of negativity before perhaps reaching secondary school age where some kind of neurodiversity is being explored? 
or are there judgments and assumptions made about the parents or, or parent? For a lot of our people, there's cultural stigma attached to it. So that they're, they're sort of battling another extra load, you know, within our communities. Often we're in a place of raising awareness. We're not even in a place of acceptance yet because uh, many of the communities are further behind in their understanding of what neurodiversity actually is. Or maybe it's just seen as a severe disability and not one that they can equate to their own child. Some people within the community, they don't really want the label. You know, if we're already battling racism, some people don't want to feel like they're battling anything else. You know, there's enough against you. It feels like there's enough against you. Educator Tom Vodden again. Now, if we assume that that is the narrative and we understand the social and cultural influences on everybody, including the teaching profession, that narrative then is assumed by me and that then starts to influence my perception of my relationship with the parents that I'm dealing with. As a parent, Tom sees it from both sides. If I try and pause that and I say, well, look, actually, what if this was different? Now, how people deal with me because of what they may know about my professional background, my economic status and so on and so forth, shouldn't be any different to any other parent, irrespective of their socioeconomic status, level of their education, because ultimately, the one thing that, that all of those parents know is their children intimately. How does this play out for teachers in school? I think it can become quite overwhelming for teachers very, very quickly to be expected to work with 30 children in a class to an agenda that they are being judged by as an individual professional working in a setting and the setting itself is going to be measured. I think it's really important to understand that it's not that the will isn't there and the recognition and the desire to support young people. There is a capacity issue which is compromised by a standards agenda which immediately puts the squeeze on things. All of the teachers that I know have a professional commitment to young people and I don't think it's a particularly easy thing always to be able to support the young people who perhaps need our support most because of where the focus and where the kind of the weight of expectation lies on schools and the teaching profession. I remember so many meetings with well-meaning teachers who didn't know what to do. Why couldn't they offer more support? The professional training, which is perhaps in some cases not as focused as it can be. I've led training at both the University of Bristol within the PGCE cohorts at one point and done something similar at the University of Reading. And this was looking at um, classroom management, kind of behaviour management type stuff. Um, but this is two hours within the training course of a PGCE student. And, you know, what can you do in two hours? No wonder they didn't know what to do with us. We were all in the dark together. 
I didn't know how to help and they didn't know what to do. I sat in meetings, perched on a tiny chair, feeling stuck. What was the answer? I asked Kieran Rose, an autistic man who himself had struggled at school, what accommodations he thought would help. No, no, no. It's like it's like running around putting plasters on everything when you've got an arterial bleed. You know, um, it's the actually it's the whole environment. So it's easier for education to focus on the child as the one that's the problem, the child that's the one that needs to be fixed or needs to adapt in certain ways. In but how can that narrative run alongside this inclusion narrative that we have? Schools will have inclusion policies, and on a daily basis, schools violate their own inclusion policies because they don't really understand what inclusion means. Inclusion isn't about let's shoehorn this person into the room and and pack them up with all these different adaptations so that they can exist in that environment. Inclusion is changing the environment so the person can walk into it without with as little adaptations as possible. Liz Soper again. I think the education system's outdated and often, you know, just not just not working. It's not inclusive. The trauma aspect um, hasn't been talked about that much, actually. But trauma is really important, isn't it? Because trauma is felt by our children when they can't attend school. But even before that, the fact that they are continually subjected to an environment that has a huge impact on their well-being and that goes over a long period of time. Um, then on top of that, you have the parents' trauma of seeing their children potentially have a breakdown. And then on top of that, parents having to try and battle the system to get support for their children. So there is a lot of trauma. We're not just bandying that word around, are we? There is a lot no, of trauma. No, no, there's a lot of that. And again, I think by creating safe spaces, we're enabling people to, to heal in some way. And what we're also discovering is, again, as black, brown, Asian people, there's another layer to that. You know, for example, within the group, we might have a parent who's come from uh, genocide or that's survived a tragedy in, in their own country. The fallout from the school day was enormous, back in their safe space at home. We saw distressing meltdowns, overwhelm, so more meetings at school. Things are unbearable for us at home, I'm treading on eggshells, I'd say. But they seem fine when they're here, would be school's response. This is a common issue, and one that causes huge difficulties for families, because the correlation between home and school is often not recognised. Masking is hugely under-recognised, but so important to understand. Kieran Rose is very knowledgeable about masking, so I ask him to explain this. If you can know anything about autistic experience, I would say this is the bit to know and learn about. I describe masking as a trauma response. 
So as you move through life developmentally, right back from the beginnings when you're, you are invalidated over your sensory needs, you're invalidated over your communication, you're invalidated about the way you behave, and all around you, you see other children and adults acting in certain ways which get them what they need. So you very quickly learn to suppress what it is you need and start meeting the needs of other people in a way which is exhausting. So it comes to the point where, again, developmentally, where you lose track of the fact that you're actually doing this. It becomes an unconscious thing. And it's almost like it creates a, a schism in your psyche. You, you, you project this, this person that goes around fulfilling the needs of everybody else. You're projecting acceptability. And then you've got this version of you underneath who's the real you that's kind of suppressed and squished underneath it all. Um, so these feedback loops of, of being exhausted, of burning out, going through mental health problems, and it's just such an awful, awful narrative. Tom Vodden. From personal experience, I hadn't appreciated how strong the expectations around getting a child into school were until the point at which my wife and I decided that it was no longer healthy, that actually it had become a safeguarding issue. And we had kind of bought into that as parents. One of the hardest elements was seeing, um, seeing her shut off. She needed me and she needed to be with me, but she wasn't there, she wasn't present, she was closed down. She was using every element of herself to cope with getting through each day. And when people talk about resilience, um, teachers use that term quite a lot, resilience. They need to learn to have resilience. Our children that struggle with that environment have more resilience than any of us because they go into that environment every day and they cope. Um, and I saw her coping to a point that no one should have to cope, to the point where other things have to go. And then eventually there's a complete shutdown. The body and the mind can't do it anymore. And they are too unwell to do anything one day school stopped for us our child could not get up and go anymore eight years from nursery school until the first day of secondary school they tried so hard tried to go tried to manage tried to cope but now they were too unwell they couldn't physically or mentally get up get dressed or leave the house. This was the end for all of us. We were done. We had to find another way. If school wasn't going to work, then what? What were the options? In the next episode, I talk to those who have found a different way of learning and find out what that can look like. Missing the Mark was written and produced by me, Eliza Fricker. The executive producer was Eve Streeter and the sound designer was Simon James. 
Music in this series was kindly donated by Kate Brooks, The Relations, Sim, Sean Julian, Tess Roby, John Ty, Abby Wade, Joel Wells and Simon James. The series was funded by Necessity, a living archive rooted in social and environmental justice. Thank you to everyone who's taken part, especially the kids and their families. Oh.